In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I said this at the last service. Um, I don't have it written out, but I I generally uh, love that we have a lectionary because it means that um, the scriptures that are being read and preached on are not sort of uh, at the whim of any one person. And every time we gather together, we hear from the Old Testament, we we hear a psalm, we hear from an epistle, uh, and then we hear the gospel proclaimed. We hear we hear sort of parts of the whole counsel of God. The lectionary is a beautiful thing, but then there are today's like today, where Hebrews eleven, this incredible chapter on faith, gets sort of short shrift. Uh, we we only get the first half of Hebrews 11 in this Sunday's reading, uh, maybe not even the whole first half, and then next Sunday we're on to Hebrews 12. So this whole chapter probably deserves uh, a half-hour sermon on, on every single paragraph. Don't worry, this won't be a half hour. Um, I don't want there to be a riot or something. <laughs> but what I am trying to do here is is take what I think is kind of the central theme of this incredible chapter and, and distill it down. And the, the phrase that repeats throughout this chapter is, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. As good heirs of the Reformation, hopefully, hopefully, we all know that we are saved sola fide, by faith alone. Did that not work? Nope. Great. We're doing this again. Oh, there we go. Sola fide. The the full phrase, if you want it, is justificatio sola fide, justification by faith alone. Because of this, we talk about faith. We promote faith. We use the language of faith when we talk to each other. But for all of this, when you try to pin someone down on what exactly faith is, that can be tricky. For some, faith is something like intellectual assent. This is sometimes called creedal faith. And we bear witness to this type of faith every time we stand and we confess the creed together. In this case, Faith is giving intellectual assent to the doctrines of faith that cannot be proven, but are testified to by the universal church and Holy Scripture. The difficulty with this type of faith, this kind of faith, is that we have all met people, we have all known people, who may stand up on Sunday and confess the creed, But that faith doesn't seem to have any real impact on their life. They go out from church on Sunday morning and live their life from Sunday afternoon to Saturday evening exactly the same as they would if they didn't confess the creedal doctrines of the church. On the other end of the spectrum from creedal faith is what we might call experiential faith. Experiential faith is faith lived out. This is a faith that is alive and vibrant. It affects a person's everyday life. 
And it would be impossible to explain how that person lives their life without accounting for this experience of lived faith. This is faith in practice, faith lived out publicly. The difficulty with this kind of faith, however, is that it is not uniquely Christian. Every religion in the world has its stories of faith, stories of people who believed the impossible and the impossible became possible. Stories of people who did incredible things all because they believed something to be true about God, about the world. Furthermore, even if we locate this experiential faith in a distinctly Christian context, we've all, again, met people who might be on fire for Jesus, but when you ask them what it is that they actually believe about Jesus, things get a little sketchy. What would it mean, what does it mean, to be on fire for Jesus if what you believe about Jesus is quite obviously heresy. The first kind of faith, creedal faith, is objective. It points to the creeds, which point to the scriptures, which point to the realities to which scripture testify. The objective question is, do you believe, do you i.e. give intellectual assent to these statements composed by the church and testified to in Holy Scripture. If you say yes, that's faith. The second kind of faith is subjective. Experiential faith is subjective. The I is central here. Do I believe? Does it impact my daily life? Am I different Because of my faith. Let me see if I can explain this difference between subjective and objective by an example. I want you to imagine a red box. If the box were real, if it were sitting right up here at the front of the church, and I thought about having a prop, but I just can't bring myself to do that. Um, If the box were sitting up here at the front of the church, we could say that the box is objectively Red. Now, there's lots of problems philosophically with that sentence, but we'll just allow it for now. The box is red. That's the objective side. The subjective question is, do I perceive it as red? If I might be colorblind, the lights might be so bright in here that it would be obstructing your view. Maybe there's no lights at all. It's nighttime and you can't even see that there's a box up front. Maybe there's dirt in your eyes. Maybe the song was so moving you're crying and you can't really see straight. For any number of reasons, the box might be red, but you might not be able to perceive it as red. That's that's the distinction between objective and subjective. The box is red, objective, but I may not be able to perceive it subjective. When we speak about faith, therefore, and I think this really is a driving theme throughout Hebrews chapter 11, what we are after 
is for the subjective and objective dimensions of faith to be aligned. The box is red, and I perceive it to be red. We have to know what it is we believe, but also that belief must be impacting our everyday life. Disciples of Jesus Christ, which is what I am here to continue to form you into, must have knowledge or understanding, and that knowledge or understanding must affect the way that we live our lives. Our reading from Hebrews begins like this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I like those two words, assurance and conviction. They necessitate a certain amount of knowledge of something. You, can't, you must be assured about something. You must be convinced of something. But they also imply some sort of corresponding action. What would it mean to be assured of something or convinced of something without the appropriate corresponding response? Take Noah, for example. The author of Hebrews says in verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah hears about judgment that is to come. That's the objective side. This is what he knows. By comparison, we might think about the line in our creed. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We know that judgment is coming. Noah heard that judgment is coming. And then what? What does Noah do when he hears that judgment is coming? He builds the he builds the ark. What would it mean if Noah just didn't build the ark? What would it mean if Noah had a service every single week where he stood up and confessed that God's judgment was coming upon the world? And then he went out from that place and didn't build an ark. Would that be saving faith? No. To have saving faith, you need knowledge about something you cannot know for sure. And actions that correspond to that knowledge. Consider Abraham, who the author of Hebrews discusses in the next few verses. I'll just read the first one. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abram is called by God to leave his ancestral home and to go to a place that God will show him because God would make of him a great nation and bless him. And in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is the beginning of the gospel. What would it mean if Abram never left his father's home. 
And yet, he went around telling people every day with absolute certainty about this blessing that would one day be his. Is that saving faith? No. Saving faith requires knowledge of something that you cannot know for sure and actions that correspond to that knowledge. It's here that the often overlooked epistle of James is critical to our conversation about faith because it's the counterbalance to a narrow reading of Paul. To be clear, I don't think Paul and James actually disagree, as many would argue, but it's not hard to see why some would think that. It's because of sections like the one I'm about to read that Martin Luther called James a right, strawy epistle and even questioned its canonicity. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me. I love the challenging tone here. Show me. Your faith, apart from your works, how, how would you do that? How would you show someone your faith apart from your works? And I will show you my faith by my works. A few verses later, after discussing Abraham, we get, I think, the very best way for us to think about faith. James writes, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Don't be confused by the language of faith and works here. What James is talking about is the objective and subjective dimensions of our faith. Read that verse again and replace faith with something like creedal faith and works with something like experiential faith, and you'll see exactly what I mean. To be a Christian then, to have saving faith, which is the driving point of Hebrews 11, is to have both objective and subjective faith. It is to know what you believe and then to act accordingly. This means that becoming mature disciples of Jesus Christ, which is what we are after here as a church, must involve building up and strengthening both our objective and subjective dimensions of faith. And frankly, a couple hours each Sunday isn't enough time to do that well. So I expect you to go home 
and read your Bibles. I know that's a lot for your pastor to ask you. (laughs) I expect you to have a time of daily prayer. I expect you to be working on deepening your understanding of what it is you believe and to use the language of James to be working on how to bring that faith to completion in everyday life. And what you should expect of me and of this church are opportunities to do exactly that. If you aren't finding those opportunities, if you need help developing some of these habits in your life, then come talk to me. Or grab someone else, a senior brother and sister in the faith, and talk to them. That's what we're all here for. To help each other become better disciples of Jesus Christ by developing a deeper understanding of what we actually believe and by learning the habit of bringing that faith to completion in our everyday life. That's the goal. That's discipleship. That's saving faith. Knowing what we believe And then walking outside those doors and living like we actually believe it. Amen.